Hello and welcome to the Smells Like Infinite Sadness podcast. I'm your host, Michael Taylor. Those of you who don't know, I run the website, SmellsLikeInfiniteSadness.com. It's a blog covering the best alternative rock from the 80s and 90s up to present day. I'm a proud middle-aged Gen Xer who is still obsessed with the music of his youth and loves to talk about it. And on today's podcast episode, I'll be speaking to Steve Kilby, best known as the frontman, bassist, vocalist, and primary songwriter for veteran Australian alternative psychedelic group, The Church. With The Church, Kilby has generated a whopping 25 studio albums since their formation, beginning with 1981's Of Skins and Heart. But he's also had a very long and very solo career, releasing 14 eclectic and stirring albums, and now he's back with 11 Women, one of his strongest solo efforts to date. In today's interview, Kilby discusses the origins and creative process behind the new album, Challenges of being a working musician during the coronavirus pandemic, future solo work, his upcoming album with the church, and a stirring account of a childhood experience with extraterrestrials that is not to be missed. So check out the interview and stick around afterwards when I'll be playing a new track off the new album. Well, let's talk let's talk about the title and the concept of the new album, Eleven Women. Yeah. Uh, which I yeah. love by the way. I really enjoyed listening to it. I've been listening Thank to it you. quite a bit the past couple of weeks. And I like just kind of how direct it is and just kind of classic sounding, I think. So thank you. So was this inspired by actual women that you knew or some fictional or kind of a mixture or how look, did that? Um, look, a long time ago, a long time ago, um, I had an idea of having, having an album that was called a 10 or 11 or how many women it was going to be. And each song would be about a woman. Uh, that was a, that was a long time ago. I had that interview, but I never actualized it. And then when I came up, when I decided to make this new album, I sort of got the idea out of mothballs and sort of reactivated it. And the women are all composite. They're all, it's sort of, you know, I could, I could wax eloquent for the whole interview until you were bored asleep with what is, you know, thinking about like Eleanor Rigby, right. Um, wasn't a real person, but, now she is. I mean, she's realer because sort of like, you know, 50 million people or even more have heard that song and think about her and sing along with it. She is realer than a real person and will be remembered long probably from the next 100 years maybe people will be thinking about Eleanor Rigby. Um, you know what I mean? So in the very act of committing someone to a song or making up a song, those people sort of become real, and the more people hear it and listen to it, the realer they become. Um, so when I started, Poppy Byron, say, wasn't a real person, but now she's been on that record and I've been living with it six months. Every time I hear that song, she's becoming realer and realer in my mind. But were all those people really real? Some of them were realer than others, and some of them were completely fictional, and some of them were quite real, and then they, be, they sort of got into the song, and then it all kind of, everything sort of swirls around, the reality and the fiction and the dream and the, everything else. And eventually you have the record where these 11 women have their own reality, I guess. Is that evasive enough for you? <laughs> no, I think that makes perfect sense. And speaking okay. speaking of Eleanor Rigby, I was thinking about the Poppy Byron song. It kind of reminds me a little bit of that in the sense, just kind of the, I guess, the tone of it. Um, and there's also some kind of very interesting elements kind of working almost 
it's a very interesting song because it's almost like a lot of things kind of competing with each other. It's kind of kind of a, a heroic kind of quality. How did you start building that song, and what was like your? Well, look, um, I said I said to the people on Instagram, I'm going to write a song next week, and um, I'm sorry, I'm going to write a whole album by next week, ten songs, and. Um, one morning I just picked up my guitar and started playing and just started going, Poppy Byron, can you feel her pull? And sometimes songs just fall out of the air like that. They really do. They just sort of appear from nowhere. And this album, this album was very much like that. The songs were all actually written within two or three minutes, like as long as it would take to play it. That's how long I took to write it. Um, they just sort of mysteriously appear when I ask for them. Um, I have to say this, and I, I don't, I don't condone taking drugs, but I smoke a joint. Every time I, I every time I smoke a joint, a song appears, at least one. <laughs> no, but it's true. I mean, that, and I've been kicked off of, you know, I've been doing songwriting workshops, and kids go, "How do you write songs?" I go, "Always smoke a joint," and then at the end of the day. They go, we don't want you p- taking part in this songwriting workshop anymore, encouraging kids to take drugs. Um, however, that really works for me. Um, having a drink doesn't will produce a song, um, but smoking a joint, I sort of it puts me in a, a receptive mood that I can I can hear the pos- infinite possibilities in a chord or a word and uh, makes everything just flow. So I would I'd get up in the morning, I'd smoke. I think the first morning that I was, I was running behind, um, right, I had run behind my schedule because if I was going to write 10 songs in a week, that means I had to kind of write at least one and a bit every day. And I said on Monday night I'm going to write 10 songs in a week, and by Thursday I hadn't done any. So I think I sat down on Thursday and I wrote four songs straight off the bat that were on this album. And and all I can say is they were there. They were available when I wanted them. Um, Sort of almost quite magical. It's like there's this very fragile portal. There's an opening. And I have to, if if I was to be, say I'd been started writing just like, um, it's strange, it all goes full circle. Just like Samuel Taylor Coleridge, no relation to yours probably, <laughs> but, you know, he had the tailor there. Um, you know, he was, he was writing Kublai Khan, wasn't he? You know this story, don't you? Uh, you know this story? The famous poet that wrote, wrote The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, he smoked some opium. He had this whole poem was about to download, and he got the first, he got the first stanza, you know, in, in in Kublai Khan, a pleasure dome did. So in Xanadu did Kublai Khan, a pleasure dome erect, right? He had that and he had the first thing. And then an insurance salesman knocked at the door, you know. And by the time Samuel Taylor Coleridge had gotten rid of this insurance salesman, he had l- forgotten the rest of the poem. It was that fragile. It was like, so uh, the same thing happens to me, obviously not on such a grand scale. I didn't have an epic poem ready to download, but the songs download very quickly. They're there and they're fragile. They're ever effervescent. 
and I've got to catch them while they're there. And, and luckily, no insurance salesman at the door. And I wrote four <laughs> songs, bang, bang, bang. And I don't know where they come from or where the lyrics, why, who, why did I pick Doris McAllister? I was writing that song and I came to the chorus. I played the A minor chord that was the chorus and the words came into my head. Doris McAllister, the name just came into my head. That's the name, you know, so it all just one thing just sort of followed the next. And it's a kind of a wonderful process that I'm not sitting there slaving over, slaving it over a song with my guitar and a biro going, oh, my God, what's the next line? I don't know what I'm going to write. It's never like that. It's just bang, there it all, it all comes down when I, when I ask for it. So... I like that. I like, I like, I like the fact that it, that it all happened so quickly. I, I believe there was a sort of a freshness because of that. Well, I was also thinking too, I mean, if a lot of musicians put out an album called 11 women, I mean, they probably would, they would all be love songs. But what I think is interesting about this album, it's, it's more kind of like slices of life or kind of a portrait of a person. They aren't specifically like that. Exactly. Yeah, no, exactly. It's like, um, Imagine, uh, imagine a, a photo album, um, a photo album called Eleven Women, and there's just photos of those of those women. Um, yeah, they're not. Then they're, they're not. You know, there's love in them. Um, some of them are bits of love songs, and there is there is love attached to it. And some of them, some of them, there's no love at all. Um, and some of them are, are just are just portraits of like random people walking past in the street or random memories from the past. It's sort of like that. It's like 11 variations on, on fem, you know, females, I guess. I don't know. Well, I was, Woman Number 9 is one of my favorite tracks off the album. I just like how it flows and kind of the science fiction aspect of it. Yeah. And it kind of reminds me a little bit of Terra Nova Kane, just in just in the kind of the the sci-fi angle of it. I wonder, uh-huh. are you a big fan of science fiction? Does it often kind of inject um, itself into your songwriting? Or look, um, I'm more of a science fantasy guy. I'm more swords and sandals than ray guns and spaceships. But let me say um, that thing that I sing about really happened to me. Uh, I know that you're going to go, oh, boy, you've had too many joints, baby. Um, <laughs> look, when I was seven, when I was seven, there really, something like that really happened that I have kind of written about very succinctly there, um, very briefly when I mention it. The aliens, the aliens tampered with me when they took my DNA. Um, some, some sort of creatures turned up um, and sort of did something to my spine, but they kind of, from then on in, I was a changed person. So they took something away from me. I didn't understand the DNA bit until much, much later on. In the early 2000s, I met a guy from England and we started talking about it. And he told me about this lost, he said there was this lost time from his life and he had a scar on his back that was inexplicable. And I started telling him about my experience and I was going, you know, there was no spaceship. And he was going, they don't fucking need a spaceship, man. They just turn up. They just walk in. And they did. They just walked into my room. 
um, when my parents, I was saying to my parents, don't leave me alone, don't leave me alone. And when they left me alone, these things would turn up and they sort of were doing stuff with me. They were like, they were testing me somehow. I was seven or eight and I had a really bad week. They seemed to turn up every fucking night for a week and do whatever they were doing. And then when it was all over, not so long after I was running around, my mother said, hey, Stephen, what's that mark on your back? You've got these scars on your back. When did you do that? And then this lie would pop into my head that they had told me to, this, they had told me to say, oh, I did that crawling under a barbed wire fence, mum. And then from then on in, for the rest of my life, like people would say, what are those scars on your back? And I'd go, oh, it was a barbed wire fence. But if you look at the scars, couldn't have possibly been made by a barbed wire fence because they're these two perfect little incisions that bisect my lower spine. And the guy told me, who'd done a lot of research into it, that, I mean, believe this or not, okay, but there, but there are beings in another, they're not, it's not a physical universe per se because they don't need a flying saucer to get here, where they have everything but they have run out of DNA and they can't, they can't sort of, um, they can't confect the DNA themselves. So they have to go, they have to go and get it from other people. Uh, or from other creatures and they sort of I guess say I was selected for this thing and after they fucked with me they did something to me so I was kind of different from then on in um as I say they the aliens um tampered with me when they took my DNA and they gave me some energy they gave me some energy that I still I still sort of have which sort of has has made me a sort of slightly different person. Um, so that really happened. Um, although you may now be thinking, wow, you need some, <laughs> you need some fucking serious. You need to go and see someone about that. But that's, my, that's what I think happened. And, I mean, I could talk about it for hours, the whole thing. Um, but that's, that's what happened to me um, after that. After that happened, after they started doing that, for example, here's, an, here's another thing that I read quite independently of this whole thing. One of the symptoms of alien tampering is a spontaneous decision during your teens to become vegetarian, which I did. When I was 17, it was like clockwork. I turned 17 in a bit and this switch came on in my head. And one morning I got up and said to my parents, I'm a vegetarian now. My father said, no, you won't. Man's got to eat meat. And my mother said, no, no. I went, no, that's it. I'm finished. I can't eat meat anymore. And I didn't eat meat anymore. And my mother, my mother gave me an egg every time the others, you know, whatever all the others would have with the meat, my brothers and everybody, I would have an egg. So um, there was my spontaneous decision to become a vegetarian. And I've sort of always... I've sort of always had this, I don't know if it has anything to do with the songwriting or what, I've always, after that point, I had an, I had an ability to really sort of um, concentrate on stuff that other people didn't, didn't seem to find that interesting. Um, but I don't know. Anyway, there, 
there you go. And I, I put it in that song, which doesn't really have anything to do with the rest of the song because the rest of the song is about woman number nine. Um, but there, that's sort of how, uh, that's how one's mind works when one's writing these three minute songs, this kind of lines come along just like the spontaneous decision to become a vegetarian. These lines pop into your head and you go, Oh, that's the right line. Um, I don't know why, or I just know that it is. So that's kind of how, that's how it goes down. You know, whatever comes along, it seems like, it seems like there is a muse. It seems like there is a, you know, Jung said that the collective human unconscious, or was it subconscious? I always get that confused. There's this kind of well that you can dip into and get stuff out if you know how to access it. And I believe that I can access it at will now. Uh, smoking the joint is the key. I can smoke a joint. The other, other day I was making, I was sort of doing this film about an artist um, that hasn't, hasn't really been made yet. They were testing me out. And I had to sit there and write on these cards. And I was out in the desert and they gave me these cards and said, just fill them up with words. And the guy just filmed me and I could just sit there for half an hour writing things down, writing phrases, writing words. It's like I never can dry up. It's, it's like I have, a, I have an unending stream of words if I want it and probably an unending stream of music too if I want it. It's like I, I, don't, I can't get writer's block. It's impossible for me. I can always, I can always write something. I always have, it'll always come out. And I'm not sure why that is because um, I, once again, when I used to do these songwriting workshops, people would always go, what about when you get writer's block? And I, I think it's a sort of a jinx to even think of that. I think, I think it's to even, as soon as a writer would hear that as a teenage kid and you hear writer's block and you go, oh, one day I will suffer from this, this thing, writer's block. And sure enough, after you've written a few songs, one day you'll get up and maybe the songs won't come quite so quickly and you'll go, oh, now I've got writer's block and I can't write anything. I was working with quite a famous guy. I won't put it, give you his name, but he, he said to me that he had had writer's block for three years. I said, what do you mean? He said, I haven't been able to write a song for three years. What do you do about that? And I said, well, you don't fucking let it exist. That's how you stop that by not even allowing for it. So um, I, I, don't, I won't allow that phrase in my life and I won't allow anyone to say, oh, maybe you've got writer's block because I don't, I don't get that. Um, and I think it's a sort of a, a thing, as soon as you invoke it, it could happen to you. Um, so so that, that's 11, there's 11 women, bang, 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 all of those songs, all written done and dusted, I would say within five minutes of starting each one, they were all finished and they were all there with all the words and everything. So that's kind of how I, I wrote that. Well, speaking about the, the lack of writer's block, I, I love the line in Baby Poe that don't blame the messenger for the mess. Um, uh -huh. You've written so many great lyrics, but when you come up with something like that, are you like, yeah, that's a really great one? Do you kind of recognize it when you've got like like some particularly I 
clever yeah. ones. Yeah, every every now and then, every now and then you you come up with something that sort of that sort of um, sort of clever and succinct and poetic, um, and you go, "Wow, how did I write that?" Um, but they all just, you know, they all just they all just come out. So. I guess when I wrote that, it's only later on when I'm singing it, I think, oh, that's a good line. Um, yeah, but they're all, you know, if I was really good, every single line would be like that, but it'd be almost too unbearable. Um, <laughs> no, it'd be, it'd, be, it'd be unbearable if every line. So I guess you've got to have, I guess you've got to have, a, a, in each song you've got to have some, it's like a, a straight man and a funny man. You can't. They can't all be killer lines. Otherwise, you need you need some ordinary lines to react against. I suppose I've never really thought about, about it before. Every every line in the song is a killer, and then you sort of by the end of the song, it'd be I guess the listener would be worn out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. I also really like Josephine because I like the yeah. use of Ebo in there and the, some mandolin. And what was what made me curious when you're writing a song, do you ever think like this song needs mandolin or do you start off writing it on the mandolin or is it that all kind of um, come later? Look, actually, it isn't. I know it sounds like a mandolin and people have assumed it's a mandolin, but it's actually a piano and um, a. a, a a nylon string guitar oh, wow. played played like that, and it's got that it's got that sort of doubly thing of feeling of a mandolin. Um, look, actually, that was um, that was concocted by the uh, the guy playing classical guitar and the keyboard player. They they put they put that on on Josephine. I never foresaw that, and I I can't claim credit for that. I just had a sort of a waiting thing of just um, bum, bum, boom, bum, bum, boom, bum, bum. I was just going to have a wait until the singing started for each verse. And those guys jumped in and put that in there. So that's, I guess that's the other thing I'm looking for is, is players who can do that, who can come up with these, these great things on their instruments to sort of, I always, you know, I always think of um, a song existing and then the instruments some of the instruments add little sounds and reflections of what uh you know i always talk about the frank sinatra record that was the only record my dad had and it seemed like frank sinatra would sing a line and then all of the instruments would illustrate what he just said like the harp would sort of do a gliss and the violins would sigh and maybe a you know a piano would add something um i really like that idea um so when i make a record and i've written songs i'm really always looking out for what the players who are playing and if they can add anything to it so i was really happy when those guys came up with those those little bits in there which now seems so intrinsic to the song Mm -hmm. um but but that's what you know that's what really good players can do they can come up with stuff like that well one thing that that makes me think about you've had such a, a wide output of stuff. I mean, your discography from everything you've worked on is, is so vast. And 
I was wondering when you're writing a song, how do you decide like which song is it going to be a solo song? Which song is a church song? Which song goes to this project? How do you decide when you're writing a song, which, which slot it fits into best? Well, I, I don't, whenever I'm writing something, I always know where it's going. So, um, the church don't really want me to write any solo songs anymore. So I don't. So I, I'm sort of limit. I, when I work with the church, I limit myself almost pretty much to whatever the church writes that day will be a church song. And all the other things are like, you know, I, I sat down and go, I'm writing for 11 women. So that's what that, all those songs are going to be. Um, if I met someone next week and said, come and help me make a Christmas album, then all the songs I wrote will be for that Christmas album. So there, it's already, I, I don't just sort of just generally write and go, oh, now I've got a song, what will I do with it? Gotcha. I'm normally, yeah, writing for a specific project. And of course, I mean, the whole world right now is we're still dealing with COVID and, and trying to figure out where we all kind of fit into that. And musicians have had a particularly challenge with all of that. How are you, we- how are you weathering it so far? And, and I guess, what do you think the future of live music is? Do you think it's going to come back? Do you think it needs a vaccine first? How do you see things kind of going forward? Well, I think, um, I, I imagine, look, uh, sort of speaking as an individual, not as a musician, I imagine what's going to happen, it seems this is the way it's going to go, is that they're going to go, the authorities are going to go, if you want to tour, if you want to go to America, if you want to go to England, if you want to go to Spain, you're going to have to have this stamp in your passport that says you've had the vaccine. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is going to be very problematical um, for me and many other people it seems at least half of the people I meet say, I ain't going to fucking have any vaccine. And I'm tending to feel like that myself. Um, I don't want a fucking vaccine. Um, um, I think, I don't think it's, I think it's gone beyond the realm of a conspiracy theory. Now. Um, I feel, I feel if there's a vaccine, first of all, I don't fucking like vaccines. Um, I don't, all those vaccines, yes, I had as a kid, um, they were all suspended in mercury. So, yes, no, I didn't get polio or diphtheria, whatever the fuck that is. Um, <laughs> but but um, you can still measure, um, you can still measure all this mercury that these, that these vaccines were suspended in. So even if it was a really legitimate vaccine, I'm worried about what else the, is in there. And then there's always the thing of maybe there is, maybe the fucking, you know, there is a computer chip and they want this to monitor, monitors, monitor all of us. I don't know. I'm not, really, I'm not really very jazzed about having any vaccine. I also, I think what will happen, what's happening in Australia now where COVID at the very at, at the, as we talk right now, there is almost no COVID in Sydney, and we have one city, Melbourne, where they have crushed it right down. So they're down to about fifteen cases a day after it blew right out, and they had four thousand cases. They've got it right down. 
what's happening in Australia now is gigs, but to so I'm going to do a gig at Christmas time. That gig used to hold four thousand people. They're getting that down to eight hundred people. Um, and gigs that used to have a hundred people in them now they can only have twenties. So they're spacing them right out. It seems like there are no foreign bands or musicians entering Australia. Um, and it seems like Australia is going to sort of hunker down and there will be gigs, but they won't be on the same scale as they used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so everybody's going to have to get used to having less people and less money or paying much, much higher ticket prices. So if you have a gig, they used to have 4,000 people and now you can only have 800. Obviously, those 800 people are going to have to pay, you know, four times more for their tickets than they used to uh, if everybody wants to get paid the way they used to. So I'm not exactly sure what's happened with all of that. I'm sad to think that maybe I will never tour America again. Um, I'm pretty old right now. I'm 66, and I, obviously I can't do this forever. And maybe by the time this whole mess is cleaned up, that that could very well be the end of it. Um, I can't. I keep reading. I keep reading all these extremely dour predictions for for the music industry, and I see that. In England, it's like 75% of professional musicians are now out of work and thinking of getting jobs doing something else. 85% of venues are closing down. I mean, it's hitting us hard. And I've been very lucky with playing some Instagram shows and having some very generous people um, watch me on Monday nights when I play my shows and donating in fact that's how i've been able to afford to do these records so i'm sort of what i'm getting from the public i'm giving back by turning it into into more music but um it's hard to see how we can we can keep going unless you know where a gig used to cost 50 dollars if you're now prepared to pay you know 200 bucks to go in there and you know, where a gig used to hold a thousand people, if you if they can keep working with a hundred people with social distancing, um, it's really hard to say what's going to happen now. But it doesn't look fucking very healthy, that's for sure. Um, I can't see me being back in America now. People are going twenty twenty one. I can't see that. I reckon. I reckon we're looking at twenty twenty two, really, before there's going to be any real international touring. And I think you're probably if, right. If, and if if it is dependent on having the vaccine, boy, that's going to be a hard choice. It's going to be like, hey, Kilby, you want to tour America? Yes, I do. Well, you're going to need this stamp in your passport that says you've had the vaccine. That's really going to be that's going to be a very difficult choice to make. You know, and try and figure out what's going on. Then, um, you know, when I was growing up, there seemed to be I know it's an illusion now, but there seemed to be the truth of how something would work, you know, like, you know, we're at war in this country or we're at peace in this country and this has happened and that's happened. And, but nowadays, 
just everything that happens is so much information, misinformation, disinformation. How the hell are you supposed to know? You're just, you're just going on, like for any proposition there is, like, oh, Trump's got COVID, and then there's a thousand people go, no, he doesn't. Have mm-hmm. it. It's just a trick. It's He's been a got a, it, yeah. It's been a real struggle, uh, even just trying to figure out what's going on over here because it's we're getting it fed nothing but misinformation from him, and and we don't really you never know the straight. I mean, we can't get a straight story out of his doctor as far as what what happened to him. So it's it's exhausting here because I mean it's really bad here, and I don't know when it's ever going to get under control. No, no, and. You know, you would even in America, you'd meet people now who go, COVID doesn't exist. Yeah. And all the people who died from it, well, they were all old people who were going to die anyway, you know. And uh, I, I, I've got a friend walking around in Sydney going, you know, all of those, there's somebody, it's, it's behooves someone, pr- presumably um, Mr. Gates. He, it all seems to, it always seems to land it. It used to be, the, the dude in um, the bank, um, Rothschild. It used to be right. Everything was Rothschild. Now it's Mr. Gates. Um, that Gates Gates wants everybody to have this shot, so he can monitor us all and see where we're all at. And uh, that he's invented COVID um, because it behooved him to to reduce the population and all this stuff. And like you could just spend all day going down this rabbit hole, trying to figure out what's really happened, who's got COVID, is there a COVID, uh, can you get it twice, can there be a vaccine, where will I be able to travel, um, all this kind of thing. You could just, you know, you could just spend forever combing the internet and you write one thing, you put one thing up on, like I've got an Instagram page, like everybody else has got a Facebook page, Put one thing up there, put a cartoon up of anybody or mention Trump or 911 or even JFK or even fuck, you know, whatever you like. You know, even mention JFK and you'll suddenly have a legion of people arguing over that. Mm -hmm. It was Oswald. No, it was the mafia. No, it was Lyndon Johnson. No, it was Rothschilds and the FBI. It's, you know. How old was Gates when that happened? Maybe he had a hand in that as well. Um, <laughs> so, no, but you never fuck, like, you don't know what's going on anymore. Like, like it seemed to me growing up, at least everybody had a version they agreed, they had, they had the version of the truth that they could agree on. Mm-hmm. But now, now you, you no longer have that and you don't, you don't know what's going to happen. And, you know, when the time comes and someone goes, Steve, we have all these gigs for you in America, but man, you've got to have that shot. I don't know what I'm going to do. I really don't. And if my daughters come to me and go, hey, dad, do you think I should have the shot? I really don't know what to say. Um, and anyway, it seems like even that is, is still um, up in the air, pie in the sky stuff, even the vaccine mm-hmm. um, is, hasn't eventuated. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. I, 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 I'm glad that I'm in the position that I'm in, and I realise I, I, it seems that I will be able to keep going um, because I sort of had this 
It's and this isn't just COVID. This is the whole music scene. I can as I can say this. I benefited benefited from that old system where, you know, my first four albums in America, five albums in America, did very very little, if anything. And it was because I had a big record company behind me that could spend the money, that could keep paying for me to make these records. Eventually, I had that breakthrough hit, and I'm sort of you know have a minor following all around the world, benefiting benefiting from that old system. In in the wake of that, no longer having that system, it seems very hard how people will kind of come to prominence and have any kind of lasting career or any or any anything they can really do because that whole whole system is gone so uh, i'm i'm one of the last dinosaurs who can sort of benefit from all of that thing of oh yeah we had a hit record and a record company paid for us to make this expensive record and make videos and they propped up our touring and enabled us to do this whole thing um I don't know how it's going to go now, now that that's all gone. And and plus COVID on top of it, it seems like, indeed, it seems like 80% of musicians are going to go out of business. And that's really sad. And I tell you one thing that COVID has done is made people really appreciate their music. Yeah. A lot of people, you know, a lot of people in their busy life, yeah, yeah, music, yeah, yeah. But suddenly with their job, there's no more job and no more going to work and no more going anywhere. And you're sitting there and all you've got is your record collection. Suddenly you're really discovering how important music is. And mm-hmm. if, if there's nobody out there able to create and play and anymore, it's going to be a sad and sorry world, I think. Well, given that, kind of dilemma and, and kind of springboarding from what you're talking about. Has there been any contact with the members of the church about making new music or are you all kind of self-isolating? We, we, we were in November, we began a new album and um, it's three quarters finished. Um, to my knowledge, it's, it's, it's like Jeffrey Kane joined the band, but he lives in Alabama. Um, so we've had that problem and, and Ashley's da- Ash, who joined the band, he's down in Melbourne, the new guitarist. Um, Ian's up in Queensland, and none of us have been able to travel or see each other or do anything. So um, the album is sitting there, three quarters finished, got some wonderful material on there. Um, but I guess we're all we're kind of waiting to get it finished when you know, as everybody says, when this all blows over. Yeah. We do have a gig. We do have a gig scheduled for, I think it's April next year. There's this annual blues fest. Um, not that we're very bluesy. Actually, we're the diametric opposite of the blues, I guess. But uh, we're doing this blues fest where they're putting everybody in a big field. Um, I guess it's going to be you know, a quarter as many people as they used to have in that big field so they can do it. But we do have a gig on the books and hopefully our our album will be out by then. Um, But at the moment, it's just sort of, it's just waiting for for things to ease up a bit. How has uh, Ashley fit into the band? Like, how has it been with him, you know, working with him for the first time? And 
Well, he well, we never ha- we never got to do a gig with him, um, but he joined the band and um, he made the album, and he was wonderful. And sort of, um, you know, there's a great thing about getting new people in the band. You get this wonderful breath of fresh air, and um, a lot of the old arguments. I mean, you know, when you've had a band with people for a long, long time, there are a lot of sort of um, there are a lot of bones of contention that are unresolved, you know. Um, oh, this guy wouldn't lend me his amplifier, you know, when I needed it, or, or he was rude to me, or he he drank my bottle of champagne, or he took my chocolate, or he trod on my toes, or, you know, whatever it is, whatever the, the bone of contention is, and they remain in the band and they fester, and I found... You know, when it was the original lineup, uh, you know, you still gain something and you lose something. When, a, when, when one of those old guys go, you lose all their experience and the, their way of doing things. And somebody new joins you, sort of doesn't have all of that, but comes in with a fresh, a fresh breath of air. And uh, I was, I was pretty tired of all the arguments that. I was enduring, not that it was their fault, but with Marty and Peter, um, they didn't really like me. I didn't really like them, and nor did they like each other. And um, (laughs) I have to say, I have to say it wasn't just me. They didn't like each other much. And now that they're both gone, that recording process was a lot more pleasant for me. Um, Whether people can appreciate that or not, there's a lot of people angry um, it seems like they, people should all, the people who are angry about their favorite members not being there anymore should remember that, that these people left of their own accord. Um, they'd had enough. Marty did 33 years. Peter did 38 years. That's a fucking long time in any industry. You yeah. go and be a police, go and be a policeman for 33 years. You'll get a fucking gold watch and a pension when it's all over, you know? So um, people should just be happy that they were that they were around for that long, and we made that music, and we did hang in there together. Eventually, all the bitching and moaning and complaining and unresolved anger issues and stuff they flare up, and then the the guy the guy like me who wrote most of this material and it, who dreamed up the church in the first place, when Marty leaves. When Peter leaves, I have a decision to make. Will I carry on? And here are the pluses for carrying on. We have a huge body of work. We've made almost 40 albums, um, and people want to hear this music. Um, do, do I carry on with new guys, or because he's left, do I stop? And I just, I just look at the whole thing and go, you know, um, I believe I have the authority to carry on on my own, just like, say, Dave Brock in Hawkwind. You know, Hawkwind is Dave Brock and whoever else plays with him. The Birds was Roger McGuinn and whoever else played with him. Um, Marky Smith had a famous quote. Um, He said, if it's me and your granny playing bongos, then it's the fall. (laughs) So I'm sort of looking at it like that as well. It's like the church is whoever I say is the church. That's the way it has to be. And 
and and we have this body of work and i was responsible for a lot of that and it's my it's not like i'm milking every dollar out of it but sort of it's it's a name it's a name and you know what you're getting if it's called the church we're going to play all those songs that made the church famous and we're going to play the new songs are going to be in that style as well so the whole thing is a sort of um is a continuation of a of a of a style and a thought and an aesthetic and a everything that mainly sprang from me you know when i was streaming up the church in 1978 1979 i was sort of putting together in my head my ideal band of what the sort of music would be and this is it and i believe I have to. I have a, a right to carry on with it. Those guys didn't want to do it anymore. I wish them best of luck. If you love them, they're still out there making records and doing stuff. Um, that you know, people are like, oh, it's not the same now. They've left, and it isn't. And you know, for me, it's better. Um, I'm I'm much happier, you know, working with these other people who who. You know, and we leave all the baggage behind. But I understand people are upset when their favorite member isn't there anymore. But it was either that or nothing. Mm-hmm. And nothing, nothing is, nothing would be no good to me. Nothing, nothing is no good to all the people who do want to hear the church and they don't particularly care. You know, they don't particularly care who strummed the rhythm guitar on Under the Milky Way. They just want to hear it. Yeah. Well, I can go out and do that now with these guys and, and we're not all, you know, strangling each other. What well, does it feel strange being the sole original member or has Tim been in the band so long and Ian's been in the band Tim's, so long that it's kind of Tim's been yeah, he's been there since nineteen ninety three. Um that's a that's like what's that, twenty seven years? Yeah. So I it think feels so. like it he feels like Look, it just feels like it was my band. It always was. Um, if people want to leave, I'll just replace them. Um, I'm sorry if that's not the Three Musketeers version that people like to believe. But um, when they leave, I and whoever leaves, I'm going to keep on going till I eventually I drop. And if you think it wasn't, if you think it isn't the church without Marty and Peter, don't listen. Don't buy the records. That's really the end of it. And with that, Michael, I believe I'm going to have to go and get on with my day. All right. Well, I guess my last question is you you mentioned that you're going to uh, make a companion piece to 11 Women. When can yes. fans expect yes. that? Well, um, I've had a very prolific year. And um, as we speak now, there are already, including the church, is probably four albums lined up and ready to come out. So it'll probably be in the middle, probably be like sort of April-ish or May next year, I would imagine, unless I try and squeeze it out. I'm going to have to see, I'm going to have to see where everything else comes because I know I've already made other records with other people that, that are waiting in a queue. So I'm not sure. But I've just, I'm doing it while I'm still sort of in the, in the rosy glow of this sort of newfound um love for doing it you know but but doing this quick spontaneous thing um 
that I'm sort of I'm paying for it, but I'm in control, so it can all go down the way I want. Well, I love it. I love the new album. I think it's great. And uh, well, um, thank you, thank you, mate. And thanks for taking time to talk to me today. It's always a pleasure. Okay, mate. All right, you take care. Bye, mate. Okay, bye, bye, bye. Many thanks to Steve for taking the time out for this interview. It's always a pleasure talking to him. Uh, you can purchase 11 women by contacting Kilby via his Instagram page. You can reach him at Instagram.com slash STVKLBY. You can stream on all major streaming services. You can keep abreast of all his creative endeavors via his website, thetimebeing.com. As promised, we're closing out with a new track off the new album. It's the aforementioned woman number nine. I think you're going to really dig it. Until next time, stay safe and stay sane. Well, I don't know about you. Travel